0: Are we on? I think we're on, Kip. Hello? Jackie, we're on. (gasps) Cool, on what? I'm on a chair right now. Ain't that right, Kip? Hi, my name is Landon Harvey. Welcome back to Landon Live. In this episode, I chatted with Taylor Mason, who is your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill writer, performer, singer, songwriter, ventriloquist, comedian, entertainer, rock and roller, blogger, political observer, author, puppeteer, pianist, an entertainer who works in every possible venue for every imaginable audience. He's done work with Disney Cruise Lines and churches all over the globe. Here is Taylor Mason's story.
1: Everything's so perfect. In 1991, this is such a good story, Romeo and I were on a TV show called Star Search. We won $100,000. The money is gone. Don't ask. Okay, okay, let's play Vegas. Okay, 22 is not a color. All right, all right. I can't believe the Christians laughed at that joke. Okay, okay, okay. 25 years ago, they did not have these great directional microphones. They pick up everything. This is a long time ago. 25 years ago, if you ever watch reruns of the old Tonight Show, Carson and McMahon, God rest your souls, okay. You'll see the shadow of a boom microphone, an ambient microphone on a boom. Explain the whole thing. I'm going to. You'll, you'll see the shadow of this microphone. It'll go from, from, the, from the boom, okay? And you'll see the shadow of, go from the host's face, Carson, and it'll be on the, the co-host's face, Nick And you'll see the shadow of this microphone go back and forth during the program right across their faces. This is so good. We fly out to Los Angeles. This is so awesome. To rehearse for Star Search, it's a nightmare, it's a disaster. They can hear me perfectly whenever I talk, but Romeo, no matter how hard I try, no sound. <laughs> Tell them the lie, the boom microphone operator was moving the microphone from me. We're getting 20 minutes to figure it out. He's a voter. Okay. And a graduate of San Diego State University. Oh, stop. Oh, boo. That's such a cheap shot. We did a show at San Diego State University slash Lauren grill. Okay, you made your point. School song. Okay. As if you've ever learned anything. I went to college. Oh yeah. What was your major? History. Oh, history. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, tell us all about the Ottoman Empire, how that affected Mesopotamia and the ramifications that's had in the Persian Gulf as we know it today. Can I call a lifeline? No. You don't know squat about history. So, history repeats itself. I watched the reruns. Get out of here. Do you know any math? Lay it on thee. Here's an easy one. Don't give me the answer. What comes between seven and nine? Family guy. No. <laughs> math. X over Y equals 10. Solve for X and Y. Here's a letter one. CNN the O equals NTD. Get out of here, Romeo. <laughs> can't read, can't write, can't do math? Mm-hmm. What job could you possibly get, Congress? OK, fine. <laughs>
2: Hello and welcome to
0: Landon Live. My name is Landon Harvey and tonight we have the multi-talented Taylor Mason. Taylor, how are you doing today?
1: Landon, I'm great. Thanks for having me on your uh, interview, Landon Live programs. Thank you for being a part of it. This is the wildest show. I've watched a few of them. They're really great.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, let's get into it. How did you get into ventriloquism? What's your story?
1: Um, I started when I was very, very young. my, my parents, it's really, it has a lot to do with my mom and dad,
2: mm-hmm. who
1: grew up during the Depression, and the number one radio program during the Depression, there were no TVs then, was uh, The Chase and Sanborn Hour, starring Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And my mom and dad loved that show. Now, they weren't, obviously, they weren't living together at the time. My mm-hmm. dad had a, a, lived on a farm and they would they had a big console, you know, huge console radio player. My mom's family would go down the street to an aunt's house and she she had a radio, big console, and everybody would gather around the radio and listen. And their favorite show growing up was the Edgar Bergen Charlie McCarthy show, who was oh, a man. ventriloquist on the radio, which has many, many ramifications for today, but I'm not <laughs> gonna get into that you know how that works, I'm not I don't know. Except right. that of course Edgar Bergen was a fantastic ventriloquist but a great dialogue and comedy writer mm-hmm. and Charlie McCarthy was a defined personality and actually a lot of comedians of that time kind of used their style imitated their style a famous comic named W.C. Fields came on the show a lot so it was very much like a sitcom sure on the radio because um, there was no television my parents grew up with that and when my parents met that was one of the things that they that, that they shared. Or they loved um, radio. They met in radio. My dad was mm-hmm. a farm news broadcaster. My mom work, was working as a secretary and a Kelly girl, which means she was seeing the live commercials uh, at WSOY in Decatur, Illinois. It's, okay. it's a crazy story. So yeah. when I was a little boy, my father one day brings home a plastic-headed, molded-headed, Danny O'Day, Puppet Danny O'Day being a Jimmy Nelson uh, character that he used in his act. He was another very famous ventriloquist in the nineteen mm-hmm. fifties and sixties, and this was the sixties when I was very little, and I'd been playing with socks like Sherry Lewis, um, doing you know shows to my grandmother basically with a sock on my hand, and my father decided we need to upgrade and become you know a real ventriloquist like my hero Edgar Bergen, so he buys me this slapjaw puppet. And the, you couldn't work a thing. It was mm-hmm. made. It had a hole in the back of the neck with a little string, and you. Yeah. It was a sock for the body. Mm-hmm. And my dad, to his credit, said, "Oh, son, let's let's build a puppet for the uh, body for this puppet." And so we took it apart and cut off the bottom of the head. And he made, molded. A, think of a, a mortar and pestle. He uh-huh. molded a, a base for the puppet head, okay. and then built a wooden body with the pestle and it stuck the you know stuck the head down in so it could rock you Mm -hmm. know like like a mortar and pestle we put a post into the neck and a thimble at the end of the string so i could grab the post with my hand put my little thumb in in the thimble and pull up and down and the slot jaw plastic mouth would open and hallelujah i had a real ventriloquist dummy which i named ted Mm -hmm. the reason we named it ted was my father Thought it was very funny because he was very Republican and Ted Kennedy was a big politician at the time, and my Mm -hmm. father thought it would be hilarious to name a ventriloquist (laughs) puppy Ted. So my puppet was became Ted the puppet, and Mm -hmm. I wrote a script, um, went to do my show maybe the third or fourth day of class in seventh grade. So I've been practicing with socks. Then I've upgraded now to this real live ventriloquist dummy. With mm-hmm. a slot job that opens and closes, and I'm going to do my show. Maybe an English class. Maybe at lunch break at the junior high school. It's seventh grade, so fourth day. Get on the bus, and these three eighth graders—I won't mention their names—Keith, and Greg, and Dean—who said, "Oh, what, what's in the bag?" And I said, "Oh, it's so my ventriloquist dummy. I'm going to do a show today for everybody." <laughs> they, they said, "No, no, no. You're doing it right now on the bus. Yeah. Oh, I can't do it on the bus. No, you're doing it now." And then you know they. Like, do you guys want to see the Taylor do a show? The crowd, is, you know, the, the bus is like, yeah. Oh, so man. I stand back at the bus, like by the exit sign. Yeah. Get out, Ted. And I start my little routine. One of the jokes was, uh, Ted, if you were my son, I'd give you poison. And then the, the dummy says back to me, if I was your son, I'd take the poison. <laughs> that was my big, big punchline. They were not laughing with me. They were laughing at me. I was humiliated. I was, oh, uh, man. Oh, man. It was brutal. It was brutal, brutal. Yeah. brutal. It was so, it still gives me uh, shivers to think of that moment. It was so bad. But I became a closet ventriloquist. <laughs> and many people say I should have stayed in the closet. Uh, I became a closet ventriloquist until I went to college. And then uh-huh. uh, I became, I started working in college doing comedy shows at the University of Illinois. And I brought, I got Ted. And I've been practicing with him alone, and finally now it's my big moment. And I, I started performing and making money. So that's kind of how I started yeah. and got into it.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. So you started. So you started off with the socks, then you turned you you created Ted from the uh, the the dummy that your father and you built. Um, right. how, where did Romeo come into play, and when, when did you decide that you wanted to not use a hard figure
1: anymore? Okay, so. First, mm-hmm. uh, in college, I hurt, I played football at the University of Illinois. I got hurt badly one year. Um, my knee was in a hip-to-ankle cast. This was 1976, 77. Oh, wow. yeah. So it was the Stone Age. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, they open up your knee, they get a chisel, and they hammer your knee, and, uh, you know, they tie it together with some rope, uh-huh. and, and they tie it back. It was very oh, – yeah. today, the same injury – I would have been playing two weeks later, but in those days, it it was, I have a huge scar. I was in a hip to ankle cast and my fraternity Sigma Chi would have these parties and they allowed me to MC the dances, especially since I couldn't party with anybody. I was sitting in the side of my cast. Uh So I have a microphone and one day a guy comes up to me from another fraternity and says, I'll give you $50 to come to my fraternity next Friday night and performed just like this for us oh my gosh uh-huh. you know the problem was i i needed when, when when i started performing i realized right away oh my gosh i'm gonna need content because i can't just go and wing it right so i went home got my ventriloquist dummy ted brought it back to campus and started performing and then for a graduation gift i i made money all through college doing this i did mm-hmm. fraternity parties sorority dances university events all kinds of stuff i made and I was making enough money. Uh, it was great. And it, yeah. it was, it was a real eye opener for me because I was making money and I'm taking econ one hundred and one right mm-hmm. at the same time. So, Oh, I see how this works. Profit loss, debit credit. Oh, this is so easy.
0: Oh, neat. So, okay.
1: Uh, oh yeah. It, it just played right into what I was doing anyway. Yeah. So, um,
0: so that was your main job during that time. You didn't have like a side job that you were working. It was, it was doing those, doing their shows.
1: It was the, the late 70s, mm-hmm. and disco hit. So my, my show was two turntables and a microphone, not to quote Beck, but two turntables and a microphone, and mm-hmm. I didn't do any scratching. Uh, this was at the very beginning of scratching and, and rap.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: the, the, the first rap tracks really hadn't even come out yet. At that time, you would just kind of start a record, and then near the end of that record, you'd start the next record. And being, I was a musician, so a lot of times I would find the key, that the same key for the two uh, disco songs, Casey and the Sunshine Band, uh, you know, um, Let's Boogie, mm-hmm. or uh, I can't remember, Oh, my, my Boogie Shoes. I think the song was called Boogie Shoes. And it was in the same key as a Donna Summer song. And I would, you know, transfer those both in the same. And then I would take a break with a microphone and do an act with Mm -hmm. Ted and then I'd go back Mm -hmm. to the dance. And oh, it was great. I I was booked. I was booked every weekend and I ended up getting these huge speakers and have a show. Mm -hmm. And then when I graduated, my father, for my graduation gift, I didn't get a car. I didn't get an endowment. I didn't get a trust fund. My dad went to a magic store in Chicago and bought a wooden headed slot jaw ventriloquist dummy made by a really nice man from Michigan named Robert Scott, whose family I would meet years later in Las Vegas, uh, which was really great. Mm -hmm. I'd never met him. I'd never met the family and they, but they were, they kind of knew about me as the years went by. Anyway, I had this wooden headed figure. So I get out of college, move to Chicago and I go to this theater called the second city theater in Chicago to become a comedy writer, actor. And it's, uh, I take my dummy. I've got my my new wooden-headed dummy, which I named JP. I'm done uh-huh. with the Ted thing. Sorry, yeah. dad, this is my own act now. I've got my own, right? So I uh-huh. go to Chicago and I'm going to, I am i don't interview, I'm going, well, I get there and you're auditioning now. Oh, for, and not, I don't know anything about oh. improvisation comedy, which is what the Second City Theater is famous for. Lots okay. of people currently working are brilliant. When oh. I was there, um, there, the cast had uh, Dan, uh, um, Dan Castanletta uh, was in the same cast as I was, and he's the voice of Homer Simpson. That okay. kind of gives you an idea of who yeah. these people are. They're just lots of Saturday Night Live people came from there. So I go oh. just because I've heard of the place. I want to be part of the comedy scene. I go and I'm auditioning to be in the cast. And while I'm doing my audition, the producer comes in. And says, you know, Taylor Mason, it says here on your resume, you can read music and play the piano. Yes, I can. So she has me audition as a piano player right there during the interview. It's a simple song. The coolest thing I remember sure. about the whole thing was she puts the sheet music in front of me and uh, it's a vamp. And the words, the, oh, the first words I'll never forget are, um, I hate liver. Liver makes me quiver. Liver makes me curl right up night. So that's those, I'll never forget that. So those, I'm like, this is the song. Uh, So I play a little bit like that and she goes, you're hired. So I've got a union gig right away. Boom, I'm Uh working at the Second City Theater in Chicago, not doing ventriloquism, Mm -hmm. but down the street from the Second City is a comedy club called Zany's Comedy Club. And after maybe a year of working at the Second City, I start working, doing my own thing, going, branching out and meeting people in show business in Chicago, and I start going to these little dive clubs or bars or saloons, or some of them were really nice in hotels. Mm -hmm. They they would have a comedy night, or they would have actors come in, singing night on a Thursday night at 11 o'clock. Actors from the local shows would come in and perform, and I would go in with with my dummy and do shows, went to the Second City, got hired almost immediately as an MC, ventriloquist MC for the comedy shows, and... That is when I started using my wooden-headed figure mm-hmm. more and more. I stopped using it, Landon. One night, I'm on a train going from the north end of Chicago to the south end of Chicago. So I'm taking the L, which is short for Elevated Train. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. the train didn't go all the way. It was a little mom-and-pop pizza joint on the south side of Chicago in the suburbs, actually. I said, get off the train. I have to walk about two miles to the gig. And I've got my wooden-headed puppet, JP, in a mm-hmm. nylon bag, and it's pouring rain. It's like February, cold, pouring rain, and I'm walking for two miles, I get to the gig, I'm late, you're on right away, so I walk up, open the bag, water pours out as if he was in a bath, as if the puppet had taken a bath, yeah. which he had, and the, I take the puppet out, he's soaking wet, Grab the, put my hand in the back, grab the the stick and the control for his mouth. But he's worked. His mouth is oh. is stuck. You know, yeah. so yeah. I I now, but I've been working in Second City, so I kind of feel what improvisation is about. And uh-huh. um, you know, so I do a whole thing with the puppet. Your mouth is stuck. Mm-hmm. This is gonna be a tough show to do. Mm-hmm. Can you say anything? Mm-mm. I'm doing as much as I can. I killed like right. 40 minutes, but. I'm, as I'm walking back to the catch the train, you know I'm mm-hmm. in the rain, the puppets the slot jaws I, I decide to myself you know what I'm not doing this anymore. I'm gonna go get a muppet like figure mm-hmm. and I'm gonna start working with those And I get in touch with a guy in Chicago named Frank Marshall okay. who's a great magician and ventriloquist mm-hmm. and he tells me about a woman named Verna Finley who makes soft, Headed figures. I call her on the phone, long distance call, big deal, yeah. and she says, "Oh yes, I can. I can send you something that you want." She said, "Can you send me a picture of what you want?" No, I'll draw it. So I drew what I wanted, and she maybe three months later, I get this soft-headed figure, Muppet-like figure, and I've been using those ever since.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I we've had a few other people on here talk about uh, how they met, how they uh, came in contact with Verna. Because they've been using her stuff. And uh, and now Marianne and Melissa Taylor have taken uh, her uh, her torch, and and they do they do uh, amazing work as well. I do so a lot of
1: work with Marianne and Melissa, yeah. and they they are lifesavers to me, and they're brilliant. Werner yeah. was brilliant, but there's a lot. I like what mm-hmm. you do. I like the work that you do. I like Steve oh, Estelle's you. work, Barry Gordon. Yeah. Work. You know, it's a funny thing, because a lot of people think of ventriloquists as mm-hmm. these weird loner guys alone in a hotel room with their puppet and they're kind of psychotic and the puppet is their real personality coming out through their arm. But the truth is ventriloquists for the most part are really good at working with other people because we need good sound. We need good light. We need good tech and Mm -hmm. we need writers. A lot of us use writers to write material for our act Uh, and a lot of us use don't build our own figures. You know, I started, I guess, making my own, but then after a while, you know, you, you find out about these people, For Finley, Marianne so. and Melissa's, you just talked about yourself oh. and you start, these are professional builders. So ventriloquists are not really loners so much. We are more, we, we, we are, we are more in, involved with a lot of other people than you would think just because for our act, Sound is important. You have to be able to see. You need the great figure. You need mm-hmm. great material. You know to kill sure. time, so you can make a living. So we're not really loners.
0: Wow. So I'm curious with the uh, with the character Romeo. Did, did he always have the the eyebrow movement? Because that's a really unique thing on a soft puppet.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. No, I, I'm trying to think. The very first Romeo I ever had, actually Verna had built, and. It, the, uh, it didn't have moving eyebrows. Oh, okay. And so I got the puppet mm-hmm. figure, character, mm-hmm. and I called her right away and said, I love it, except the eyebrows don't. I thought the eyebrows were going to go up and down. And she said, well, that's very difficult to do with a soft-headed figure. And right. she said, I've done it a little bit, but I'm not real comfortable with it. And I said, I would pay you extra to make the eyebrows go up and down. Do you have any eye? And, and she said, this is what I would do. And so I'm going to bring, oh, this is a Marianne Taylor and and Melissa Taylor figure, but this is what is this? We're doing up here, get, get in the camera. Okay. Try to get other way, other way. Oh sorry. No, no.
0: Here, let way. me let me make you the uh, Oh there you go. go.
1: Okay, whatever. Good, no, I got it. All right, okay, All right. We're good. We're good. So the eyebrows go up and down and Verna uh-huh. basically told me, I said, I can't really wait. So she explained to me what to do. Show them. The the eyebrows are basically a coat hanger, believe it or not. Really? Yes. And I, so she, there's a thing called a dart gun, which I was uh-huh. familiar with, believe it or not, because I had a grandmother, seamstress. My grandmother was a seamstress, thanks. And she lost, yes. melted yes. And you can, you can punch a hole in, in foam, which is what these, these Marianne Taylor figures are and the Vernon right. figures were. It'll just, poom, put a hole there, poom, put a hole here. Like a lobotomy. It's not like a lobotomy. And then you stick it the coat <laughs> hanger all the way through bend it uh-huh. so that it, there's an eyebrow on top. It's just a coating and we just cover with pipe sure. cleaner. And mm-hmm. then on the inside, everybody has their own way of doing it. The original one I did was I twisted the, the coat after you know four or five times of, of hit and miss. It was hurt. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't. The I finally <laughs> figured out that I needed something in there. So I, I just put the thimble similar to the one my dad had made with me years mm-hmm. before, put the thimble on the end. I think I duct taped it in, okay. inside the head. Yeah. And I made the eyebrows go up and down. And ever since then, don't put me down. I'm going to put you down. No, don't. Nah. So ever since then, uh, I, whenever I have the puppets built for me, I always ask. But now I'm at the point with Marianne and Melissa where what they I don't know. know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're like, yeah, uh, not another. You don't want the big-headed puppet again, do you? Oh, yes. I want the giant-headed puppet. And I can just, without seeing them, I can see them on the phone. Ah. I know it. <laughs> When you're working with foam, I know this from my own experience. From doing this, the the bigger, the bigger the head, the more difficult everything is. The sewing, the cheekbones, everything becomes no. a little more intense. But mm-hmm. I love the big heads because I yeah. do a lot of work for um, in a lot. I'm in the theaters a lot, and with now this is changing over the last five to ten years. But mm-hmm. for most of my career. In these big theaters, there was no IMAG. There weren't the big screens, right? So mm-hmm. you would go up there with your, with with your soft-headed figure, but people in the back could barely make out the the puppet. Right. So the, the, as years have gone by, I've convinced Marianne to build these humongous-headed puppets, which I love. I know it's a pain for her, but from yeah. the audience standpoint, plus it lends a different, it, it lends a unique, um, personalized character to mm-hmm. what I do with my act. Oh, you know, when you're clicking for the youtube or the tv channels or whatever. oh he's that guy with a weird big head puppet i've seen him before you know but it's not just the head
0: the whole, the whole puppet is is larger than what they they're used to building um right. but it's interesting and i do the same thing for myself i've got an old man character um named mervin and he has moving eyebrows but he's i built him bigger and uh, i used thicker foam for the head so you could see him uh from afar so i totally get it. that's there. more difficult um, right
1: i mean it's there's just it is. Okay, so yeah. It's
0: uh, yeah. When you have thicker foam and you're, you're trying to do max and it all, it all has its own. Yeah. How does this go together? Another... <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a lot of, lot of testing in the workshop, but that's, it's definitely neat. So, um, so you were doing these gigs at, at and various comedy clubs. When did star search come into play? Was that later on? Was that yeah, earlier? You know,
1: so, you know, that my career, I've, I, it's an interesting thing because mm-hmm. even though, so I've worked as a, as a musical director, I've worked as a comedy writer uh, at the Second City, and then I became like an improvisational actor, uh, not it, oh, clearly by happenstance, because I auditioned to be an actor, but got a job as a musical director. And then for whatever reason, people would miss a gig or something, and I would have to play a part. So I would have to, I'd be playing the piano for a little while, and then I'd go up on stage and perform, and then I'd run back and play the intro and outro music. Mm-hmm. And then I started working at Zany's where I became like a ventriloquist MC. But a lot of times the comics, oh, Jay Leno would be a good example, Jerry Seinfeld and another. It's Richard Lewis. They would come up to me after, you know, Leno was the first one. You know, I'm, I'm, I, you know I don't know if you're not familiar, but I, I'm a I'm a stand-up comic. And I don't think it's really appropriate if you bring me up with a puppet. So just bring me up as Jay Leno, okay? You know, and he pet younger children. So, okay, I get it, there's some the real comics. The, hot, the hip hop also happening comics don't want to be introduced by Puppet Boy, which I yeah. didn't care. So uh-huh. it meant that I had to work on my stand-up comedy, which is interesting because that ended up making my ventriloquism stronger, my ventriloquist act stronger, mm-hmm. believe it or not. I think because, um, you know, Second City is very much like the Saturn Live, which is very much like sitcom writing. So it sure. all kind of synchronizes and blends together in some amorphous goo of comedy. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of glad... That I had that experience. Uh, and that helped me working towards Star Search because I auditioned for that show probably seven or eight times before I actually got on the show. And the the my booking, the guy that was, I don't really work with agents or managers. The people that I work with, I work with long term. And the first the first guy that I worked with was a man in Chicago named Joey Edmonds, just a lovely, wonderful man. Who got me lots of college gigs? I did tons, like maybe twenty five hundred college gigs all over America. Five hundred. Just just, oh oh my gosh, I did. I can't even tell you how many. Sometimes I was doing three in a day, and Mm. uh, I did tons of those. And then I worked with. He introduced me to a guy named Rick Rogers, who was in Los Angeles, and Rick was very very smart. Mm. uh, Handled uh, Bill Engvall from Blue Collar Comedy, and Rick Rick lives in Dallas now, as a matter of fact, Um, but a very good, just a really good man, a lovely man, and helped me a great deal. And he said, we're going to get you on Star Search. And and we got on, and he was very smart. He said, you're going to win Star Search by attrition. And I think that's kind of, I could have named the book, Taylor Mason, I Win by Attrition. Uh, You have two minutes on this show. I have auditioned like eight or nine times, and I finally get on. He introduced me to somebody who knows somebody who gets me on the show. So now Mm -hmm. I've auditioned, I'm on Star Search, and I'm going to be competing against other comedians. You get two minutes to do your act. And then the audience judges how many... You know, you get one star, two stars, three stars, or four stars. And the way we approached it was we're going to pack as many jokes into my two-minute box as possible. So the idea for me, had been three jokes a minute, okay. which would have been six. We pushed that to eight. With the This is the idea. I'm going to do eight jokes in two minutes. The other guy might do, set, let's say, six jokes, and every single one of them kills. So he, he's got six. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do eight jokes. All I have to do is have seven kill, and then that beats him by one. So okay. that's how he did it. So, so a lot of guys, too, they would do character Mm-hmm. They would do three punchlines, just blow the room away. They were, but I would go out and do my eight. So even mm-hmm. if four of them miss, if four of them hit, I win. So I, I was winning week after week. It was you know you go on one, and what they would do, they'd film two weeks on one day. So you go on in the morning, do the show, I would win. Come back in the afternoon, do another show, I win. Come back the next week, do a show, I win. And I was probably on eight weeks in a row, and wow. never lost. And then we got into the finals. And use the same mentality. And then you could repeat your greatest hits from the eight previous shows that I had done, which is I did. And then I won the show. It was $100,000. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's one of those things where one day uh, my, the manager, Rick Rogers, he's calling everybody and begging them. And then after that, I'm just getting booked. So now, yeah. and, and then you're getting, because you have a little clout, especially mm-hmm. with whatever network Star Search had been, it was a syndicated show. So you go to San Francisco and you do Good Morning San Francisco as the mm-hmm. winner of Star Search, and then you play uh, the Punchline Comedy Club for three nights, and then you go to Minneapolis and you do Good Morning Minneapolis, and then you play. And so I did that lasted for probably three or four years, and uh, uh, it was a good it was a good thing. Another interesting thing about that is uh, my my act is very punchline intensive, mm-hmm. and I had gone to Northwestern University to graduate school. And I had, had a professor named Don Schultz, who's a very brilliant man, a brilliant marketing genius. I was in a, a master's program in advertising. And Don Schultz is, is professor emeritus just for advertising, period. And he had a couple of great sayings. You would hand in a paper and his whole thing was whatever you had written, he would say, who cares? What you know? And he would write right on your paper, who cares? And then when he would. He would hold out your paper for the class. Here's what Taylor Mason wrote, who cares? You know, that was his thing. And so you have to make people care, whatever you write. It has to be something people are, you, know, you have to think, I maybe my jokes, what I want to write about are flowers, but how many people in the audience in the comedy club, want You know I have to write about stuff that they enjoy sure. or make it so funny that they enjoy the fact that I'm writing about stuff I want to write about to answer the who cares question. The second thing he taught was be efficient with words, and, and get to the point, and I took that in my career as get to the punchline as quickly as you possibly can, as few mm-hmm. words as possible, which fit into Star Search because I'm trying to yeah. fit eight jokes into two minutes. So I, I was not Mr. Schultz's favorite student at Northwestern <laughs> University, but uh-huh. he taught me a great deal. And it was years later before I realized, my gosh, this is exactly what Professor Schultz was teaching in marketing class, in advertising class at Northwestern. And now I've put it into, into my career.
0: Wow, how did you decide what uh, characters and what what uh, pieces you were gonna use on uh, Star Search?
1: Yeah, Star Search, I stuck with one. This okay. was a big thing. Another Again, Rick Rogers had a, just a huge influence on me because uh, I had all these puppets that I could use. And he said, you know what, the best thing to do, stick with one, just stick with one figure every show. So that when people tune in, they're going to see, Oh, this is who, and it was Romeo, mm-hmm. um, a soft headed Verna Finley. Romeo, I believe. Oh, no, it was, a, it was one of the first Marianne Taylor,
2: uh, okay.
1: Romeos. And so every week, Romeo changes clothes every week. And, but just so people would recognize, Oh, here he is with Romeo mm-hmm. again. So, sure. uh, now R- Romeo came, the reason Romeo is named Romeo is specifically for the reason that Romeo is everything that I'm not. So he is, he thinks he's funnier than he is. Uh He thinks he's a, he thinks he's very hot. Mm -hmm. He thinks he's very interesting. Uh, He thinks he's very uh, hip hot and happening basically. And always trendy. He's always on the cutting edge in his mind. That's who, who he is. So when I was thinking of names to replace JP, Romeo became more and, Romeo became more of, uh, it just became more and more, in my mind, he's a real Romeo. He thinks mm-hmm. in every way. He's just, guys want to be his best friend, and the girls want to date him. You know, he's just so cool. And that, and, mm-hmm. and so as the years have gone by, he's become more Romeo-ish than I could possibly have imagined him ever being.
0: Wow. I'm sure that it's easier to write for him, though, too.
1: You know, and everything because is you great. have that
0: character defined.
1: The character is defined. So uh, the latest stuff I've worked on with him, you know, it is. So you know, all the jobs that he has, with Romeo's mm-hmm. job resume is always stuff related to being a puppet or a mannequin. So okay. the the last one, the last thing that I've well, just in the last probably three or four months, he is a CPR dummy, which um, let's just do this. It'll give you an idea about the whole, sure. the whole way that we write. So, so we're going to do this, yes. So the whole way that we actually write together, I'll, put, I'll give you the credit. Thank you. All right. So Romeo's going to be a, a CTI domain. So the first joke is, um, what uh-huh. are you going to be? Cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Right. Say it again. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And tell everybody why you like saying cardiopulmonary resuscitation. I like to see you say the words. Without moving your lips, exactly. Because <laughs> saying cardiopulmonary resuscitation over and over, very hard to do. Right. So no. there's so many now. When you practice a ventriloquism routine, you're mm-hmm. not just doing writing the jokes. That helps. That helps a lot. But you also have the physical stuff because you've got your live character. Not really live. No. But okay. So this is what you do as a as a cardiopulmonary resuscitation dummy. This is it. Right. And then people come. And they're breathing into your mouth. And it's disgusting. So now the jokes can kind of like themselves. Do you enjoy this? No. And tell everybody why? I taste a lot of things I would never eat otherwise. Right. Uh, (laughs) Kale. Okay. (laughs) Folks, brush your teeth. Right. So a lot of the joke writing for a cardiopulmonary resuscitation dummy. And how many people just during a day, how many nurses would practice breathing into you? Just give us an example. A hundred. A hundred a day. So you're just laying there all day. Yep. Until like number 99. So number 99 comes and they breathe into you and you're just laying there. What do you finally do? do this. Thank you! Okay. On the line! Yeah! Okay, good. <laughs> so that is, but you know, it probably took to get to the point where I get to that punchline, probably sure. took like I'm doing right now with you. Mm-hmm. I stand, I'm in front of a mirror instead of in mm-hmm. front of a, a video camera. Uh, We're in front of a mirror, and it is boring. Okay, it's a little bit boring. Yeah, older and older and older. Okay, but I practice a lot Mm -hmm. and watch my lips all the time. Cardio. Cardio. Pulmonary. Pulmonary. Resuscitation. Resuscitation. Good. So practice that enough so you can feel comfortable not moving your lips when you're on camera doing a real show. Thank you, Mm -hmm. London. All right, so. Thanks, Romeo. (laughs) So that's kind of how... And again, the, um, the idea with the, the, the final joke of after the 99th person has breathed life into you, what do you do? Thank you. That should be, the, to me, that should be enough of a punchline right there. And you can add uh-huh. tags. But the great thing about that punchline is it's a two-word punchline. And I don't know why this is. But again, to go back to Don Schultz at Northwestern University,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the shorter the punchline, the bigger the laugh. Now, I don't okay. know why that works that way. If you watch sitcoms, a lot of times the biggest laughs are when somebody goes, no, ha, ha, ha. you know, you watch Seinfeld, huh? and the place, it, it's like the biggest laugh of the whole show. I don't mm-hmm. know why that is that one syllable, one word punchlines, thank you, get a, a bigger laugh than no. you know the, the, the one where you really put a lot of thought in and you word it perfectly mm-hmm. and you get down to just the essential elements that make up a perfect punchline and it gets a laugh. But nothing yeah. like
0: the. Huh? <laughs> well, it's neat. I love I love your style of uh, of comedy as a ventriloquist too because you build up the illusion with uh, your 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 pig characters that you have, and then Romeo and all the other characters that you use, and then you break it and you and you toss them down and you move on to something else, whether it's a musical aspect to your show or you're doing stand up. And so it's this: you've got you're not just a ventriloquist, but you're a you're a performer, and you've got all these different different aspects to your show. And uh, it's just just truly neat. It, it creates a, a truly neat di- dynamic.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Landon. You know, Brian Dorfman runs a comedy club. I've worked for him many times. He, he ran a comedy club in the Chicago suburb called Zanies. And mm-hmm. now he runs a very successful, one of the most successful comedy clubs in the country, Zanies in Nashville. Thanks, Brian. Um, but a great guy, good friend. Uh, just a, uh, But he often has said that my act is a little bit like a Grateful Dead concert, or a Fish concert, or a jam, any jam band concert, because a lot of times it's, or it's the way he put it is also, it's kind of like Santa Claus, I I bring a bag on stage, instead of coming down the chimney, I bring the bag on stage, I throw the bag down, what's in here, you know, open the bag, oh, it's a pig, you know, I do a little act, and all right, well, how far can you go with a pig, eight minutes? (laughs) <laughs> you're gone let's play the piano and then da, 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 da. how can you how long can you go with the piano eh, let's go 10 minutes well now what let's tell now let me tell a story about myself i do a little stand for 10 minutes you know what? i'm gonna go back to the pig now and grab the pig let's get another pig no it's, <laughs> it's you know it's ah.
0: but, but i'm curious is there any is it just when you every time you go on stage it's whatever you have and whatever you decide to pull out first or is there an order to it
1: oh there's an order there's okay there's a, Actually, you know what the truth of that is? There's a show that I want to do. There's the Mm -hmm. Taylor Mason show. This is the show I want, A to Z. Starts here, and then I'm just really cool. It's like all the best qualities (laughs) of me. Just, oh, it's so amazing. And there's a beautiful character arc to the entire thing. And then a big finale at the end. Poof, thank you and good night. The truth is, I get to do that show maybe twice a year. Mm. Otherwise, you're in a comedy club, you're getting heckled. Well, there goes the entire... I'm just dropping that whole thing, and I'm doing a song. For, you know, I'm just going to get these guys settled wow. down, and now I'm... Or I'm doing... I get to a place... This has happened a lot. I get to a, a theater. Mm. Great. I can't wait to do my show. Well, do you mind if most of the audience is under the age of six? Huh. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I have no problem with that. I just wish you would have told me maybe even an hour ago. But, no. you know, oh, my gosh. You're, so how many kids? Three hundred and fifty. So you got three hundred and fifty <laughs> five and six year olds. Well, I'm not going to be doing my, you know, esoteric take on the sun and uh-huh. how it's affecting human human life. We're going to be doing lots of, huh? <laughs> right. I'm going to be mugging. The puppets are going to be getting, making fun of me. Uh-huh. You know, I might get water squirted, squirted my anything to make fun of, you know, myself, oh. so that six year olds laugh. And that yeah. happens a lot too. Every once in a while. There's a moment where I'm in a theater or a comedy club or uh, I'm on a cruise ship or something and everything kind of, oh, my gosh, ah, I'm doing the show <laughs> that I want to do. Oh, it's so, so amazing. And that happens, like I said, twice a year.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, how do you deal with hecklers? That's an interesting thing.
1: Yeah. And do you have a heckler story
0: that you could share?
1: First, First, I think I'm hard to heckle. I okay. Think my act is hard to heckle because what like just we we've, we've been talking about mm-hmm. i'm just moving between all these different parts piano and stand up audience participation you come up on stage you get the puppet i'm going to okay give me the puppet you stay sit down you come up here i'm going to make you do the puppet right. and i'm the going the to never is stagnant yeah and, okay so it's hard to, to yeah. for the heckler who want and sometimes i can tell they want to get in there and they're mm-hmm. trying really hard but I'm just I plow ahead because I found out especially in comedy clubs the best way to handle a heckler and the best thing for the waitresses and the staff and the waiters and everybody is if the if the comic or the act on stage can just keep going and and negate the heckler that just makes the entire experience better for everybody mm-hmm. nobody has to worry because the guy's just so strong the heckler loses now it doesn't always work mm-hmm. and I've had Experiences and what I usually do I there's a song a Mose Allison blues song from like 1965 Called your mind is on vacation But your mouth is working overtime which I've used many times I make up my own lyrics And and I'm very insulting and mean and Uh the guy and it's hard when I'm you know you're playing a blues thing on the piano You're a moron did you know that? (laughs) <laughs> it's really hard for the guy to. He's trying to shout over your music, and the crowd is cheering, and they're pointing at the guy. Yeah. But I have had, there was this comedy club on Long Island. I love this story. Mm. And I'm getting heckled by a table of four on my left. So they're over here in the corner. And from the moment I start, they're, they don't even know who I am or what I do. They're just heckling me. And they're mean. And uh, my my usual thing with hecklers, if I'm going to acknowledge them, is I try not to use stock lines. Uh, You know, I don't come to the supermarket and and take the grocery carts when you're trying to work. You know, stuff like that. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: I try to to engage them in some way. Right? Why are you here? Why did you come here? We came here to to laugh and there's no show. Well, the show is starting and... Uh, you, nobody wants to hear you. So I think that you came here for a whole nother reason. I think you came here to, to prove to everybody what a moron. You know? <laughs> you know, so I, so I engage them and they don't, uh, they don't shut up. And the other people in the audience are yelling at them. Shh, you know, shh, let them do his act, but they won't stop. So on this night, I don't know why, but I feel like, you know what? I'm going to go over. I'm going to talk to them. So I take the microphone. <laughs> it's got a long enough cord and I'm walking through, excuse me, pardon me, I wanna go talk to these people who don't like me. So I walk mm-hmm. over to them with the mic and I turn to the audience, and I'm, this is probably 30 minutes into my show. Listen, everybody, I'm just gonna to talk to these guys, just these people and me, we're just gonna have a conversation. You do whatever you wanna do, I'm gonna to talk to them. And of course, nobody does what they wanna do, they all wanna see. It's like, I get all the focus of the whole place. I can just feel every eye. So I turn, seriously, why are you guys here? And one of the women there said, you're intimidating me. <laughs> and I said, no, lady, this is my show. You're in my office. If, if you don't want to watch a comedy show, that's fine with me. Leave. I, I, you know, if you guys don't know how to act, get out of here. And not, they're cursing at me and everything. But one yeah. of the women is like, honey, let's get out of here. He's scaring me. He <laughs> might hurt me. So, <laughs> so of course, I, oh, I might hurt you. you know. I'm, and I'm yelling at him. And I keep trying yeah. to express the, the audience. Don't worry, um, you guys. I'll be right back on stage in a minute. I'm just talking to my friends over here, and I turn back and I talk, and and oh, it's the wildest. So they got up and left. They, the four of them, got up, and the crowd goes crazy. Yeah. And I go back up on stage. And I, I finish my performance. I'm all done. I walk out, and the, the club owner Jimmy, comes up to me, and he's like, "Man, I had this huge complaint. He didn't even come into the club. He never came, and he never knew that he was wrong." Well, these people came out, they said you came over to the table and you were gonna kill them? And I said, No, no, no. I said something about I'm killing, but I wasn't talking about killing yeah. them. So he said, Well, I had to I had to comp them because they were so upset and they felt they they felt threatened. The woman was crying. So that's one favorite story i had. And I started oh, using it. So I started using that technique. I would get heckled, and a lot of times what I would do is let the hecklers go, and I would just work for my 45 minutes, and then I would turn this at the end. I'm my show's over, everybody. I'm going to go talk to these people because I've learned how to do this now. Because I've done it right. Yeah. I'm going to go talk to these guys over here who've been shouting at me the whole show. Show's all over, and I would walk over. Nobody leaves, and I would talk to them the same way. And every time I've ever done it, the hecklers finally get up and walk out, and the crowd goes crazy. Oh, they, I didn't know you guys were going to stay. The show's over, but thanks anyway. Good night. And I mean, yeah. So that that's been my heckler routine, I guess, I've used a few times. And of course, to put guys in their place, a lot of times you can just use Romeo because he'll Mm -hmm. just be, you know, mean. Uh, it just be brutally mean, just personal and mean and nasty, (laughs) stuff I would never do. Um, So he's another, you know, he's a good foil for that. Mm -hmm. But those are two of my favorite of stories.
0: Wow, I love that, that's hilarious. What is one of your favorite show memories and then one of your most difficult or challenging show memories? Let's and it can, be, it can be any show from anything you've ever done.
1: You know, my favorite, my f- favorite show, I just like to work. Uh-huh. So I love, I love doing shows. Um, here's a good one, though. Years ago, I, I used a sumo wrestler figure and giant. This was built by Marianne Taylor, and it took us a long oh. time. I drew a picture of what I wanted, and she said this, and this was a life size. Sumo wrestler, huge, bigger than me. It was huge, yeah. bigger than life. And she, Marianne said, well, how am I going to build this thing? I mean, it's a great idea, but how can I build? So we talked uh, maybe and, and sent pictures back and forth. And I finally thought, of, what if you could find a, um, a balloon? And she said, what about a beach ball? So Marianne of course goes out and finds this huge beach ball that would fit inside the back of the sumo wrestler puppet. And every night before the show, <sighs> I have to blow this thing up. And he would become this, you know, huge puppet with mm-hmm. this sumo wrestler head. And then I would have a woman come out of the audience. She would sit down, the sumo wrestler would sit on top of her and she would operate the mouth. And it was, so it was, it was a lot of fun to do the, because the, the mouth was, oh, I, I, I am, um, and the reason it's my favorite part of my show mm-hmm. is because I couldn't get it to work. Okay, for many, many, I mean, for a year, I mm-hmm. could not get it to work. It was, so I'm f- flying all over the country, with this thing, and it's not working. And what a waste of money and time. I, uh, you know, I'm embarrassed. And I'm going to have to call Marianne and say, you know, this idea didn't work. Now, we're at the same comedy club on Long Island. Governance Comedy Club, and I'm working with a great guy who passed away years ago, Stan Bernstein, a global entertainment network. was network. Global Entertainment Network was his company, and he was my business manager. And his secretary comes to the show and watches the first show on a Friday night. And I do the show, and then I bring up Sumo, and it doesn't work. I haven't yet brought anybody out of the crowd. I'm just doing the act with Sumo, and it doesn't go right. nowhere, and I throw them away. Intermission, or between two shows, it's between the first show and the second show, sitting in the bar with a secretary from Stan's office, Long Island girl smoking a cigarette, and she says, The sumo wrestler doesn't like it. It's not funny. I don't even know why you do it. And I, you know, well, you're right. I, I don't, know. listen, <sighs> why don't you have a girl come up by the audience, have her operate the puppet? Maybe that'll work. I gotta go so she walks up and i'm like what you know, so I Can't <laughs> wait for this concert. mind blown yeah, the yeah. are going up and they're, they're doing, i don't even know if they I, I can't stop. i'm i i can't wait i can't wait i go up on stage with the sumo wrestler i get introduced i just walk up i got i'm carrying him you know his back to the audience throw him down on the stool this is my friend sumo i need a helper and bunch of hands go up i bring this girl up She comes up on stage, I sit her down, put the sumo wrestler, and as soon as the sumo wrestler sits on her lap, the place is going out. People are laughing. She can't figure out how to put her hand in the puppet. The head is all of a sudden, you know, moving around in all sorts of weird ways. Yeah. And for like 20 minutes, I'm killing in ways. And the whole time I'm thinking, this is going to be something that's going to get me a lot of work. And it did. It got me, I don't know how much work I got. And now, years later, so I would do that after that, I never saw the girl again. I don't even remember her name. God help me. How stupid is that? But she changed my uh, the trajectory of my career at the time yeah. forever. Um, and now, what I do is I do a lot of work for Disney, mm-hmm. which, I don't know what's going to happen here with the pandemic, but what I've been doing for many years is I got rid of Sumo because it's just so big, but wow. I have many people come up and say children, adults. I give them all puppets so I have four or five people on stage. They have their own puppet. And I try to sync the words as they move the mouth. So I'm using my improvisation skills from Second City. I'm using wow. my comedy skills from Don Schultz. I'm using my ventriloquism skills. And I'm using the, the advice from the secretary in like 1995. Oh, man. You know, I and, mean, of course, it's, it's one of those routines that people, to this day, I mean, mm. I get people say, My favorite comedy thing I've ever seen is when you bring everybody out of the audience and give them a puppet. And a lot of times what I've been out to is for children, I'll bring the kids up and they'll operate a a penguin or a little guinea pig and I'll give the children, for helping me out, I'll give them a puppet so they go home with, Mm. you know, a memory of the night. Yeah. So, I mean, but all that came from someone who, a secretary, Mm -hmm. you know this doesn't work at all. This sumo—it's not funny. Hey, you got a cheese. Gosh. Yeah. She changed my career.
0: Well, there's, there's clips of it out on YouTube. And what's hilarious is whenever you put sumo on the person's lap, they're sitting on a stool. You have them sit on a stool. You pull sumo over their lap and they disappear. You can't right. see them anymore. And it's, 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 it's so it funny. It was so funny. Oh yeah. my gosh. That's it was great. Just,
1: it was just, it's just one of those things that who could have predicted it. Yeah, And I thought, and when Marianne and I came up with the, the concept, it was so different. It was nothing yeah. about audience participation at all. I didn't right. even want to do audience participation, but it turned out to be such a, uh, a, a great thing. And it's, it's kind of manifested itself into something right. even better wow. now, frankly. But yeah, Sumo was great. The only problem with Sumo was, they were, you know, you're backstage at a comedy club you know, I get there an hour before showtime, uh, a sound check, whatever. We don't have a piano. I don't care. I got to blow up my sumo. I'm in the green room. And Marianne had... So the puppet's body, if you can imagine this huge thing. Yeah. And there's a slit in the lower back, right? I uh-huh. open it up and I blow up the puppet. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in a comedy club and I've got the puppet <laughs> splayed out on the chair. Uh-huh. And I'm, you know, blowing him up. <laughs> and people come in Oh no! It's one of these freaky ventriloquist things. Ah! <laughs> so I've, I've I've demented lots of people's lives yeah. by sumo. So I stopped traveling with sumo.
0: Oh wow, man, that's hilarious. Well, you talked a little bit about working for Disney. How did that come to be, and what was um, was your show already uh, perfect for Disney when you had started with them? And it well, was is, all, I,
1: work, I don't I don't curse. So there's no cursing on stage. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one thing right there. That's one. Right. There are just The Disney brand, to work for Disney in movies or television is very different than working for Disney live in a theme park or on a cruise ship, because on a Disney cruise ship, you are working for families, and they have these 2,500 seat Broadway theaters with everything perfect, sound, lights, tech, it it does not get any better. IMAG screens, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Everything is great, but don't be dirty. You or to just to be, just to get to the point, stay out of the bedroom, stay out of the bathroom, mm-hmm. and do less. But that's what I do anyway. Midnight show at the improv, midnight show at Zanies. I'm squeaky clean, especially compared to most of the other comics that work these wow. days. So, which is I don't really care. That's what but I that's, do. Mm-hmm. That's but that, that's just me. That's just my milieu, whatever you want to call it. That's what I do. I guess if I if I wanted to, I could probably be risque, mm-hmm. and I am sometimes. But I'm never blue. I never I never get vulgar, um, which is perfect for Disney. It's a family show. They have a brand that they're very, very brand conscious company. They're by far mm-hmm. the most brand conscious group I've ever worked with, and that's mm-hmm. fine. I know that going in. Mm -hmm. Um, I was actually introduced to Disney by Jerry Abramson and Dan Abramson, another who I've never worked with as a client, but they were the ones who first put Disney on the radar for me. And then uh, the the man I work with now, my business partner, Tim Grable, and I uh, came up with a deal with the Disney Cruise Line business. And that was 15 or 16 years ago. And I've been doing 20 to 25 cruises a year for Disney ever since then, which I enjoy. I do a lot of shows. I do mm. a ton of shows. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. I don't know what the future is. I don't know if it's good, bad, medium. What's going to happen? Audience participation. What's going to happen? Sure. I don't know. But I'm going to guess that Disney probably going to figure out a way to get their boats in the water, to get their theme parks open, to get their movies back in the theaters and people coming to paying a fee to come see shows. Yeah. And... What, what I've done from the very beginning with Disney is I, I work with them. I work with their creative people. I work mm-hmm. with their techs to make sure that my program fits exactly what they want. And I give the audience exactly what the audience is expecting from a Disney first class show. They charge a lot of money on those ships. Mm-hmm. And the reason they charge a lot of money is they give the audience exactly what they want. You have to do... What I usually have to do is a couple of family shows, and okay. then I have to do a couple of adult shows, and maybe a couple of workshops, or kind of like what we're doing here, where I just talk about my career and have sure. fun with kids and adults, so, and answer questions about my career. So yeah. it's a lot of work. You're only out there for four or five days, but you are. I work a lot when I'm out yeah. there, and but it's a great job. I I I love working for Disney. I've enjoyed. It.
0: Wow. It do nice you know? Time. Are you friends with Lynn Trafzer?
1: Lynn Tresker is an amazing person. She's just an amazing person. just, uh, just uh, Lynn, Regardless of the fact that she's an incredibly talented and just wonderful ventriloquist, mm-hmm. she's a great person. And I know Lynn is very, very popular with Disney cruises. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I know that is because I'll go and do my tech and the guys are all like, oh, we just had Lynn Tresker here. She's really good. <laughs> huh. Well, that's really great to hear. Thank you so much. No, no, I man. you ever see her act, she's really great. Ah, uh, I mean, she's a really good at. Okay, I get it. But, yeah, but it must—it
0: must be neat to you know be able to chat with her and, and compare notes. Yeah, I did that. That you know Disney Cruise Line or yeah. I, what do what, what do you think about this? That's that's you know, neat. Actually, to... um, uh,
1: you know, Lynn, she's really, really busy, mm-hmm. and I have not. The only the last time I talked to her was actually at the Ventriloquist Convention oh, cool. in Fort Mitchell.
2: Mm. So that's like, that was
1: a couple of years. Oh, wait, was it last year? I can't remember. Whenever was that last time I saw her and we actually did the the Saturday night show at the mm. ventriloquist convention on Saturday night, the big finale. And this year, this last time that I was there, I guess it was last summer, Lynn and I were on the same show and she was just, I mean, she just knocked the audience out and I had to go mm. on after her. Ugh. She's just great.
0: Wow. That's great. Yeah, she's. Uh, I I have to have her on for an interview too. She's she's. Amazing. Oh yeah,
1: she's she's a great um, interview. She's a, just an incredible person.
0: Yeah, so I want to I want to move on to uh, your book here, Taylor Mason, Irreversible. What was the inspiration behind writing this? I've read this cover to cover. It's phenomenal. Um, a lot of fun to read and uh, really neat to hear your your story. Um, what inspired you to write it?
1: Well, it's my second book. The first book I wrote was called The Complete Idiots Guide to Ventriloquism which okay. I I didn't enjoy write, writing hmm. at all. I think the, the people that want it, that the Complete Idiot's Guides are really great. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a whole series of Complete Idiot's Guide to sailing, uh, you know, workshop, uh, wood shop, whatever you want to do, they, they're, they're, there's the same thing, the uh, Ventriloquism for Dummies is a similar thing. So when they came to me to do the Complete Idiot's Guide, I think I was probably 10th on the list And Mm they talked to nine other people. They probably wanted somebody of note, but everybody's busy. And they finally Mm -hmm. got down to me. And it was one of those deals where I got paid up front. So if you buy the book on my recommendation, now I'm not promoting anything because I don't get paid. I got, I got an upfront fee. So, but that was my first book. It was a lot of work. And I had two editors bugging me all the time, but, it gave me an idea of how to write a book, how to beginning, middle and end,
2: mm-hmm. how
1: to put it all together. How I, and the whole time I'm writing, I, I was thinking, gosh, I'm gonna write my own book. I'm gonna write my own book. And yeah. I talked to the editors and they were oh yeah, you know, if you want to write, we had to churn this thing out the first, that first book in a matter of like six or eight months. And I cranked it out. Three, it was a ton of work, yeah. got it done, got my check. It sold like crazy, still sells, mm-hmm. thank you. Uh, and then I started my second book. I, so that came out in 2011. And the book that you just, Irreversible, took yep. me seven years to write. It was supposed to be a two-year deal. It took mm-hmm. me seven years to write it. And the reason for that is I had diaries from back when I was in high school all the way through college. And what a, it was a labor of love. Uh, went through two different editors and uh, two different publishing companies. Finally got it published last year. It's gotten a lot of great reviews. I'm so glad you love. It. Everybody's enjoyed it. It's got oh. about 20 good reviews on Goodreads. It's got oh, right? a bunch of good reviews on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. Google Play. It's three bucks for the uh, for the ebook. So if you got nothing to do during a pandemic, it's basically a lot of a lot of the stories that I've told here are similar stuff oh. from when I started to how I get to the point where I'm at now, and lots and lots of stories. I've met just about everybody in comedy from the 80s through the the 2000s. And I tell a lot of stories about meeting all these people and working with them. And I've been around all these people in comedy for my entire career. I met my wife through my career. My wife was working at the Second City Theater while I was there. Mm -hmm. And I met her. She was a very talented actress at the time. When I met her, she was making more money than me. Then I ruined her life and got (laughs) a lot of... And actually, my wife, very talented. She worked at MTV. She was in oh, production right. at MTV for three years in New mm-hmm. York City in the heyday. I mean, she, mm-hmm. was at, she was at MTV in the late 80s. Madonna, Billy Joel, Elton John. It was, oh yeah, she rode in a limo with Madonna to the New Year's Eve show at MTV. She, oh yeah, she went to the MTV Music Awards. She was there, uh-huh. but her husband you know, dragged her down into the cesspool <laughs> <sexual laughs> of ridiculousness, that, which we live in now.
0: Well, what I love about your book is it's titled Irreversible. and when you when you finish it, you understand why. And it's such the way you finish your book is so um, as a newbie going into this art and, and performing. It's such a uh, such a showbiz ending that I just I oh, just it's such a such a great. Well, you such know, a great and ending. I
1: learned from the first book. Mm-hmm. This is what I learned. It's just like right, building your little ventriloquist act. Yeah, I'm going to do my act with Ted, and <laughs> with Ted and I are going to come out. It's going to be an opening where, uh, and the big joke is gonna be at the end, and, you know, if I was your son, I'd take the poison. Yeah, thank yeah. you everybody, and good night. <laughs> and put it back in the bag. So it, there's gonna be the beginning and the middle, it's gonna be an arc, and it's gonna make a lot of sense, and at the end, there'll be a big explosion of laughter. And so, when I wrote The Complete Idiot's Guide, the, the two people who were the editors were very big on, this is the beginning, this is the middle, this is the end, this is how we have to do it, this is, the, mm-hmm. this is our protocol. And although I didn't do it the same way, it gave me great insight to how to write the book. Mm -hmm. And so with Irreversible, I had come up with the title. And the truth about that is a good friend of mine, David Nickel, who was a writer at the Miami Herald, a very, very good uh, writer, a beat writer, Mm -hmm. and feature writer for the Miami Herald for many years, and wrote politics, local politics, show business, everything, just a brilliant man. And i was telling him one night at a after a comedy after a show at a theater somewhere he came and saw my show and i'm telling him oh you're you're a writer newspaper writer i'm writing a book and i told him what it was and what i how i wanted it to and i told him the story about at the end and -hmm. he said oh the title of your book should be irreversible (laughs) so once again a ventriloquist getting help from somebody else obviously not a loner I'm mm-hmm. working with all these great people, and this guy's a brilliant journalist. Whoa. Uh-huh. It's and well that's it,
0: the, that's amazing because kind of, so your
1: book has to be titled Irreversible. And yeah. It kind of brought everything, you know what I mean? I got it.
0: Well, Bob Rumba, uh, we're looking at the comments here. Bob Rumba just commented, I used to go watch Taylor play piano and ventriloquism. That's super cool. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, I am think about Rumba fan. Rumba. <laughs> The first time I saw this guy, now for people who don't know Bob Rumba, he's kind of a Chicago institution. And the first time I ever went to a comedy club was the Comedy College in Chicago on an open mic night. Hmm. And I did. I actually went up and, and did a little routine there, a stand-up comedy routine for like three or four minutes, forgettable. Hmm. Um, I was with a friend named Bob Williams. We both went. And and Bob Rumba was the host. And I, to me, he was the best, the coolest thing. What he would do is he came out. And he was introducing all the acts, but he did a different character every time he came out. So he did, we had a ventriloquist thing. He did a Groucho Marx thing. He did a clown. He did like four or five, maybe eight different characters throughout right. the night. So every time he came on stage, he was a different person. It was really, really cool. And it stuck in my mind. And then years later, I met him at, in person at, um, at a Frank Marshall meeting in Chicago, and he gave me his business card. Bob Roma came up and I said, oh, I know who you are. I saw you at the Comedy Cottage like six years ago. Yeah, oh, I'm neat. That yeah, That's super neat. Guy.
0: Well, one of the stories that you had told me uh, before was a story about your pigs because you you see that Romeo, uh, originally built by Verna Finley, now he's uh, you have a, a bunch of different versions of the character because you need backups as a, as, a, uh, as a seasoned performer that are built by Marion and Melissa. Um, but you have these pig characters that are smaller. And um, can you talk about why you still use them and why they've worked so well for you uh,
1: throughout the years? The pigs, okay, the pigs. Uh, it kind of ties into Disney. Okay. And uh, but the first, the first these the pig puppet that I use in my act is no longer built. So the first ones that I used, I had I had built a pig puppet that did not look anything like this. Mm-hmm. But the first puppets that I built. And the whole premise of the thing was, I'll do this for you. The whole premise of that pig was the legs were really soft. It was a foam puppet that I had built myself. It was like a, think of a sock that was sure. someone shaped like a pig. But that that puppet, had, I, I would do this with the puppet where I'd stick the legs into the body and the puppet became like a whole different pillow, right? Okay. Okay, so that was the premise of it. And it's an idea that I had in comedy clubs to do, a, somebody because somebody had told me, I think a comedy club owner said, you should get the audience involved in your puppets. So the idea uh-huh. was to have, uh, the puppet would re, would lean down towards somebody. Are you okay? I'm
2: good, I want
1: to meet her. You want to meet her, okay. And I would pull his leg and she would pull the, you know, ah, the, you know, okay. She would scream and everybody would cheer. And then I would give it to the, another person. They would pull the leg out and that was the whole bit. Uh-huh. Then, I start working with uh, with a guy named Bill Gaither. Hola. Hola. We're on a program move over here so everybody can see. Okay. All right. Oh, muchas gracias. The tanny, a that. Okay. No more Spanish, okay? Este es No, no, no. We're not speaking any Spanish. We're going to speak English, okay? Okay, señor. All right. So, this is Paco. And when I went on the road with Bill Gaither and the homecoming artist, thank you, Jesus, mm. yes. A very, very um, Christian-based gospel tour playing arenas. Oh, Yeah, playing big basketball arenas. And Bill Gaither, out of everything that I did, loved mm. the, the pig puppets. And even though we're in a 20,000-seat arena, mm. the, they could see Paco mm. because they had like diamond vision. They would travel mm. around the country with this huge, big screen, like over the stage. So yeah. I could do close-up, basically close-up ventriloquism. See, sí. Because even though the oh, nee. the pig is really small. They can see. They could see everything that I did. Hello, senor. Okay, Paco. So Paco, because Bill loved this guy so much. And Bill Gaither, Google him if you're not familiar. Brilliant man. One of the best bosses. I, I did a tour with him in all these arenas all over the really all over the world, uh-huh. uh, Carnegie Hall, Sydney Opera House in Australia. We played all over, and Paco became a big part of my show, even bigger than he was before, because Bill really liked the pigs the most. Uh-huh. So I incorporated them even more into my act. I knew a little something about pigs, because my Uncle Art mm-hmm. is uh, raised hogs. He had a birth-to-slaughter hog operation okay. uh, years ago on my family's farm out in Grand Ridge, Illinois, and I worked out there for a couple summers, and I learned a little bit about pigs, and then I majored in agriculture at the University of Illinois. So I knew something about pigs. It only made sense when I started putting them in my act. And as I said, it was Bill really loved it. And then when I left the Gaither tour, I just kept the pig in my act, added more pigs <laughs> to the act because children really – and you wouldn't believe how many people collect pig figurines, pig puppets yeah. – pig dolls, it's, it, mm-hmm. there's a huge industry. And on the Gaither tour, I would sell these. I would sell, I was selling, sometimes I was selling 5,000 pigs a month. Wow. At these arenas. So, cause you're doing a 20,000 seat arena in Detroit one night. And the mm-hmm. next night you're at a 20,000 seat hockey arena in Chicago. And then the next night you're at a 20,000 seater in Minneapolis.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm,
1: I have a little kiosk. And after the show, people are coming up and buying. My pig puppets. So oh, I did that for three years. And then wow. with Disney, the pigs just play in, you know, there, there's a Disney cartoon of three little pigs. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just played into everything that I've done ever since. So thank sure. you, Bill Gaither. Thank you, Homecoming artists. Um, that is kind of the story of the pigs.
2: Um, that's, that's the, the pigs
1: that, now they're not made anymore. You can't find these anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a few of them. and I have some knockoffs. That uh, I built myself. They don't look anything good like this, but no. I—they don't sell these anymore. I think I sold them out. I'm mean, seriously—I think wow. I, I just blew through their entire thing.
0: Yeah. Oh. Well, that's super neat. I always—I always find it amazing. You see, some of the most talented ventriloquial performers, uh, like Sherry was use—you know—use nothing and make it a right. total character. You know, and that's—it's always fascinating me how you can take these. Uh, these uh, little pig puppets and give them that give them the character that you do. Um, that's a really good point. What are you I think, currently?
1: That, I think that's a good point. Ventriloquism. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, you know, you can have the rolling eyes, the eyebrows, the tongue that sticks out. Uh, yeah. You know, all the wiggling ears, hair that you can hit, do mm-hmm. a, a bow tie and spin on, You can do all that, and that's great, cool. But I think it's very much it's very much like. Uh, the more minimalist you can be. Mm-hmm. It's very much like writing the punchlines. Sure. The, the quicker you can access something, the better. And when you have mm-hmm. an opportunity to get a figure, a ventriloquist figure who has all the, eyes open and closed, move back and forth, they roll, whatever, all those great, cool things, that's just gonna enhance what mm-hmm. you've already been able to create. But if you're able to, to work minimalist, you know, Jay Johnson has basically mm-hmm. worked with a couple of figures Willie Tyler has worked with just Lester and just yeah. done Lester for who knows how many years Sherry yeah. Lewis did lamb chop, you know, and, uh, uh she had, a, uh, what was it? Um, Oh, Charlie, Charlie horse. Charlie horse you know, yeah. She had a couple of different, but it was very mm-hmm. basic. Um, sure. and she made all that work. And I, I, although I have a lot of puppets, I did a children's TV show for years called Taylor's attic. Mm-hmm. It probably had 14 puppets on it. I think, I okay. don't know. And but I had I had professional people operating. I didn't do all the fourteen, um, but just working minimalist is really it. It makes you better. It enhances everything for you.
0: Sure, I bet. Yeah, it's like spend time on the character versus money on the puppet type thing. You know? Well
1: said. That yeah. you know, and if you a lot of times too, I think you, as a ventriloquist, you, you get enamored with. Oh, that's that's the coolest looking blank figure I've ever seen. I've got to have it. But I think it's always better. Yeah, that, you know what? I think the pig that what if the pig's like are stuck up in his body? Oh, let's do that and I'll make that work. Uh-huh. And then oh, let's write some pig jokes and, and you know, already have in your mind how I want things to go, with the character the pig's are gonna speak Spanish, I don't. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. You know, that's that's have that defined before you build or before you come up with the character. I mean before you come up with the actual puppet, have it defined sure. what you want it to be. That's always a better way to go. Could but you- the greatest example is Sumo which I thought mm-hmm. was such a great idea, but I'd never yeah. had any material for it. And then when I finally did, you know, I, I got lucky, but that just taught me from now on, I'm going to define the character and have the, have the basic concept set before I get the puppet. Hmm.
0: That's a great, that's a great rule. That's, that's a yeah, great rule. you talk a little bit about your joke writing process? Does it differ when you write for yourself as a standup, Than when you're writing for Romeo or one of your ventriloquial characters or even one of your musical aspects to your show.
1: Okay, so there's there's that's that's a whole that's hours of, Mm -hmm. but let me think of uh, let me think. Uh, Okay, I'm just trying to just as an example, this is Mm -hmm. how it's it's very much like homework. Writing jokes is very much like homework, and this goes back to Don Schultz's advertising class at northwestern university who cares and use as few words as possible to get to the punchline so i'm just trying to think of something um it you know okay so there's a, the pandemic is going on this is how i would do it uh so i'm gonna write pandemic jokes um, pandemic is going on it's you know, it's been going on since gosh it's from the beginning of the year really so What, what, what a year? So, year, um, you know, it's not been a good year. Um, so a good year blimp is how can you you can't have a good year blimp, right? Because if I if I see (laughs) if I see a good year blimp, I'm gonna sue. Okay, so that's how that's how I would do it. That's like the
0: word associations. That's interesting. Okay,
1: right. But there's a lot of ways, there's so many ways I don't exclude anything. Puns are okay, word association, anything I but. I'll just start with the seed of an idea Uh and then I'll just keep trying to associate words with it until I can make something funny. And then if it doesn't work, I don't put it in my act. If it does work, I try to, the CPR thing is a great example. It probably, when it started, it started, the whole CPR joke started as a Joe Biden joke. I'm a CPR dummy. You're CPR dummy? Yeah. One guy was weird. What do you mean he was weird? Rubbing my hair, rubbing my shoulders. It was weird. Who would rub your hair on your shoulders? Joe Biden. Okay, so that. But you can't keep going because you, he might become president. And then, yeah. so, you know, you don't want to be... Uh, so I just... But I love the idea of Romeo being a CPR dummy. So uh-huh. that's become like the routine that I did for you earlier. I just, you know and then i just keep writing until i try to i try to come up with three punchlines per concept hmm. and then nine punchlines it can be like a little hunk and 18 punchlines which is like a, a short set okay and then to do a 5 minute 5 minute monologue you're going to probably need Somewhere in that eighteen to twenty-one range of punchlines to do, yeah. and i what I'll do is I'll come up with a concept. If it doesn't work for me as a stand-up, give it to Romeo or the pig or the penguin, whatever the puppet is. If that doesn't work, maybe it'll work as a song. Okay, so um, I have so I used all the skills that I have mm-hmm. to try and figure a way to find something that's funny, and you know you're always trying to keep your act going and improving and different and have new material and so that's a challenge as well but as a ventriloquist comedian musician that's my job so i uh, it's homework and i don't like doing the homework but Mm -hmm. i do love it when it works sure
0: sure it's that that uh that process of how many hours you put into it versus how much gold you're able to to uh pan out with on stage yeah that's, exactly,
1: that's and it never ends either. It's never ending. You know, I mm. have notes all over the house, of uh, in my office actually. Mm. Of just oh yeah, I remember this. I was working on this. You know, I'm working right now on this musical thing, of um, my piano. Uh, I had I started with a piano, and it was electric Casio. And I once killed an audience with my. And I've been working on this routine for. Um, I was, and I want it to be like this big theatrical thing. And since the pandemic has started, I've kind of got it figured out now how uh-huh. it's going to work. And the piano, you know, I hit it against the Harley Davidson motorcycle, the Harley howled in pain, my piano howled in joy, you know, and uh, I'm going to do this whole thing, but I've been, but I have all these notes and uh-huh. i look through these notes. Oh, I haven't done that since I was probably 25 years old. I'm going to put that in my app now. Cause I've got time.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's phenomenal! So, are you working on anything right now? Because, because you, you know,
1: you know, yeah, I'm working on that's a that's a great example. I'm working on that thing. I, mm-hmm. I can't wait to get it out on on video. I've been doing every week. I've been doing a um, a new video. Okay. Uh, I call live from Taylor Mason headquarters. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to do this last Monday would have been number ten. I couldn't do it because, believe it or not, I've been busy. I got all these jobs. I've been working. I've done uh, virtual shows. Okay for four or five different companies. Uh, I did it for a family, the Stud family. Thank you, Mike and Mrs. Stud, and their kids, Kyle and Cora. Yesterday, I did a thing for um, my friend, Ken, Miss Banks uh, in Las Vegas is a kindergarten teacher. And I did a show for her kids. Uh, The day before I had another thing, it was, I'm busy. I'm doing all these, tomorrow I'm doing a program for Eric Friend and some uh, parents and their, their kids at school. I've got a big thing coming up for another company. I did, I've done an aluminum company. I did a direct marketing company. I did a, a digital library. Com- I've done a lot of these virtual shows. Uh-huh. So I'm pretty busy. I'm work, even though I'm not going out on the road and doing Disney cruises and theaters and comedy clubs, I'm still doing a lot of shows. Sure. And I've been working. I've always kind of been a, a wannabe magician. So okay. I'm, I've been working on magic. So I might oh. be adding magic to my app, which I, I've always loved magicians. I work with a lot of them on Disney cruises. Yeah. And I think I'm going to add magic and have Romeo be some be a, a partner, like a pen and Teller-ish thing okay. with me and Romeo. I so, can see uh, it. Yeah. yeah, I'm working on a lot of stuff.
0: Wow, that's great. I love that. That's super neat. And I'm sure that, that the virtual shows, you know, they have their own, you know, obstacles too. You know, just like, yeah, you know.
1: The, the tech, the tech mm-hmm. is – because you know, I'm used to I need a mic. I need this is the sound I need in tech. Right. Oh, okay, Mr. Mason, yeah, I'm mm. used to that. Now <laughs> there's no Disney guy from London with a degree, and you know, I mean, right, I'm with, right. Oh, wait a minute, how does a microphone work? You know, there has to be light. You know, <laughs> yeah. Look at my yeah. hair.
0: <laughs> well, um, what do you in, in wrapping up here? I'm I'm curious to to hear what your perspective is on uh, what you hope to see from the future of vent and from ventriloquism.
1: Well, you know ventriloquism. Is, this is the golden age of ventriloquism, mm. thanks to uh, America's Got Talent has been. Uh, and I, I actually did the show, got moved on to Las Vegas, and then they never had me on the show. This is oh, happening really? in a lot, a lot of shows. Wow. I'm just saying that, just full disclosure. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I would like to do the show, but that show has and actually be on it. I did the show. The hosts were. Or the judges were Pierce Morgan, uh, Howie Mandel, and uh, Sharon R.'s okay. was the year that I did it. And it went great. Actually, they kind of told me what they wanted the, the producers. It's a great show. They mm-hmm. have a great concept. And they told me, this is what we want you to do. And I did it. I did exactly what they wanted. And it worked great. I filmed mm-hmm. it in New York. So it's kind of like my people. I live in New Jersey. So okay. it, was, it was a great night. Oh, yeah, you're going to go to Las Vegas. But I didn't fit what, what their show, what they wanted their show to be, mm-hmm. and I, which I completely understand. Yeah. Uh, but that has been a great show for ventriloquists. They probably have two or three on every year. And, of course, mm-hmm. Terry Fader won it. Um, mm-hmm. Paul Zudan from England won it. And then Darcy Lynn Farmer, who is incredible. All, mm-hmm. of, all of those three are just incredible ventriloquists. They've had a lot of ventriloquists on the show, who didn't win the big money or didn't get to the finals, but did a great job. And so that show has been a boon for ventriloquism. But ventriloquists, you know, years ago, you would never see a ventriloquist on a TV show. And I remember when I was on Star Search, there were a lot of people who were really upset in the comedy business that I had won, that it should have been a stand-up comic, that I took took a prize from somebody who should have won it, who cares? I, I really don't care. Whatever. Yeah. Um. But today, ventriloquism, Jeff Dunham has made it a very, it's a different world for ventriloquists. And you got to give a lot of credit to Jay Johnson and Ron Lucas, who people may not know now, but they kind of kept the, uh, the lifeblood of ventriloquists pumping when ventriloquism was not pop. You couldn't book kids' shows with ventriloquists. Right. But Johnson and Lucas and another guy named David Strassman, Mm -hmm. they somehow went out there and did shows and kept it going. Um, And good for them. And, of course, the Bob Rumbus, Lillian Treska Mm -hmm. that you mentioned. And there are a lot of people that worked for a long time. Pete Michaels is a great ventriloquist who recently Mm -hmm. passed away. But it was a great ventriloquist. And a lot of these ventriloquists are not just – performers, they really have a great love for the art, for the writing, yeah. for the figure makers, for the for the whole thing. The whole process, so, sure. Uh, yeah, it, it is a process. Mm-hmm. And I think that today it has a little more respect because of America's Got Talent. Mm-hmm. And then because you've got so many people like yourself, like Terry mm-hmm. Fader, like Tr- Lynn Tresker, Dan Horn. I mean, I could name a whole bunch. Um, Nina Conti from New from England, from London. Yeah. Incredible ventriloquist and so that you see more ventriloquists online. And I think that's mm-hmm. been another real boon for us is that there's lots of great ventriloquists who can do their shows online and you can watch sure. what they do. David Pendleton is mm-hmm. an amazing act. Yeah. Uh, there's just so, there's so, Ken Groves, there's just so many mm-hmm. really great ventr- men and women, all races, all backgrounds. So it's a really interesting art. I, I just, I don't, I don't see it, you know, I don't see it fading away the way it did for a little while. Here's another interesting point, Landon, Mm -hmm. and this is really wild, but think about this. The ventriloquism heyday until now, and I consider this right now, the golden age of ventriloquism, whether anybody wants to admit that or not, but ventriloquism was incredibly big in the teens from 1912, 13, 14, 15, and through the 20s during vaudeville, Mm -hmm. ventriloquists were huge they hit an apex during the Great Depression when, as we talked about in the very beginning, just to bring everything full circle here, where we're talking about Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy during the Great Depression, one of the worst things that ever happened in America during the 30s, a ventriloquist was one of the most popular acts in the the world, if not just the United States. Mm -hmm. Vaudeville happened during the Spanish flu, which was a pandemic that wiped out millions of people it was worse than what we're going through right now mm-hmm. during, the, during, vaudeville, during Vaudeville. So you got the yeah. Spanish flu and Vaudeville, Spanish flu and Vaudeville. That happened with ventriloquism. The Great Depression and ventriloquism, that happened at the same time. Jeff Dunham became a superstar, the biggest comedy act in the world, mm-hmm. while there was a Great Recession going on. And now there's yeah. a huge pandemic, and there's Taylor Mason – on the Land and Harvey show. So <laughs> see what I'm saying? That, that
0: it's, all, it's all connected. It is History, all connected. Yeah. And History's reason, bound to it repeat itself.
1: So. Ventriloquism, when people are looking for an escape, when mm-hmm. people are looking for something really uh, different, yeah, funky, funny, and and maybe surrealistic, but also yeah. fantastical and magical. Uh, magic and ventriloquism often seem to flourish when there are really bad times. So Hmm. to answer your question, what do I see for ventriloquism? I would say based on past experience of our country and our history, ventriloquism is probably gonna do pretty well.